ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. We've been in Matthew for over a year now. Did you know that? And, and I'll just tell you, like, I like listening to a lot of different preachers. That, that's actually pretty quick for a book like Matthew. I mean, you guys have no idea. Like, I'm trying to rush through this thing. Speedy in a year. But we are coming up on the end. And what a powerful, powerful time. We are in the last week before Jesus goes to the cross. It's his final week with his disciples before he's arrested, crucified on the cross, and dies in our place. And so because of that, these last words, these last conversations that he has with his disciples are are just pregnant with meaning and really important. Everything Jesus says is important. But this here at the end, it's like, now you guys need to know this when I leave. Here's what I want to leave you with before I go to the cross. I want to start with a question. Anybody, how many of you are amusement park people? You like going to the amusement park, riding the rides? couple, we, we have a very boring church. Okay. A bunch of wimpy people. Okay. Um, that's fine. That's fine. So uh, I grew up around Chicago. We had a, a place called Six Flags Great America. It's a really big amusement park. Um, I've also, since we moved here, been to Darien Lake. It's all right. Um, it's okay. But you know, when you get up to an amusement park ride, like one of the big roller coasters, first year it opens, right? And you get up there and it says, wait time, approximately two hours. Two hours. I was a youth pastor for about 10 years. And this is like annually, we would take the youth group to these amusement parks. Two hour wait time. We'd get up there. I'm like, what are we going to do for two hours? Now, I, I don't know how it is, the amusement parks that you've been through, but Six Flags, Great America, everything was themed. I think they used Looney Tunes, like Bugs Bunny and those sorts of things. Every area of the park had a different theme. So as you're in line, there's this incredible scenery. <laughs> None of it's natural, right? It's all fake and man-made, but it's incredible. It's cute. And as you're walking around, there's, there's music playing. And then at Great America, there were um, monitors or TVs at the end of each aisle because you're, you're just doing this, right? You feel like the, the hamster on a wheel. You're just going back and forth for no purpose whatsoever trying to get on this ride. You're waiting for two hours for a ride that's going to take about two minutes. And, and they have TVs playing cartoons. And all of this, I believe, is to distract you from the fact that you are wasting two hours of your life. They're trying to get you to not think about the fact that you're waiting. Now, I want to contrast that with something. My daughter Ainsley is going to camp today. This is her first full week at a Christian camp. She's been for a couple days and some events before. It's her first full week. For about a month now, she's been counting the days and the weeks as she's waiting. A couple days ago, she came to us. She's like, Mom, Dad, I'm all packed thinking, okay, the eight-year-old has just packed herself for camp. This will go well. And actually, she did pretty well. She got out, you know, six outfits, and, and she had some good stuff. And then she had the other bag that was packed full of stuffed animals. I was like, no, we're not taking 20 stuffed animals because they're never coming back in the same shape. You get one. I'm that dad. You get one. Take one. But what a different sort of waiting 
One is trying to ignore the time, trying to stay distracted while you're waiting. You're just passing the time. It's literally a waste of time. You're just waiting to get on that ride. The other is an active preparation for the thing you're waiting for. You're spending the time to get ready for something. So here's the question, right? Last week, we talked about waiting for Christ's return. That's what Jesus has been talking about. We're kind of in part two, picking up this all of that discourse. And he's talking about waiting for his second coming. What kind of waiting are we to do as Christians? Are we simply staying distracted and wasting time until that time that Jesus comes back? And so we're just here to kind of entertain ourselves and keep ourselves as busy as possible so we don't notice how long it's taking. Or... Are we supposed to be busy and faithful on a mission preparing for Christ to come back? Now, I sure hope that there's no one here that would answer that question wrong. I think all of us would say, well, duh, pastor, of course you're supposed to be faithful and wait. But now ask yourself this, how do you wait? And how do I wait? Do our lives show waiting in a way that is preparing for Christ to come back? Or do our lives look like we are biding our time, trying to pass it as quickly as possible and remain distracted until Christ comes back? That's a tougher question. So let's set the scene here for Matthew 25. Jesus and his disciples have left the the city of Jerusalem. They were in the temple and they've walked out and they began this conversation. The disciples asked him, what will be the signs of the times of your return. Tell us what that's going to look like. And so we began in chapter 24 last week, and we're picking that up. They've made their way to the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem, and he sat down with his disciples. Maybe there's other people there, but the scene is really him speaking to his closest followers and telling them these important things. Now, At the end of chapter 24, he used the illustration of him coming back like a thief. And the illustration was if the landowner, the owner of the house, if he knew when the thief was coming, he would only have to be prepared when the thief showed up. You wouldn't have to be prepared all the time. But his point is you don't know when the thief is coming, so you always have to be prepared. And he said, that's how you are to wait for me. Always be prepared. And in this chapter, he's going to talk more about what it looks like to be prepared. He's going to use two parables and a third that's kind of sort of a parable. It's a word picture. And all of them hang on and revolve around this idea of what do the people in these stories and illustrations, what do they do while they are waiting for something? So we're going to pick it up in chapter 25, 1 through 13. We've got the the parable of some translations say the parable of the ten virgins. Some say the bridesmaids. It's really the same thing in this context. I'm going to use the word bridesmaids. The parable of the ten bridesmaids. Now you need to know a little bit about their culture. The groom would come to get the bride when it was time for the wedding to start. And so the picture here is this groom that probably lives in a distant uh, village, and so they don't know when exactly when he's coming. Could be any time during the day. For some reason, he's delayed, and the bridesmaids are supposed to stand there and wait for the groom. And as it gets dark, they have little lamps, and these would be tiny little handheld things that wouldn't hold much oil. 
They would have lamps to light the way for the groom to come in and enter the ceremony. It was part of their tradition. And so these 10 bridesmaids, this is what they're doing. So let me read verses 1 through 13. You can follow along or I'll put it up on the screen for you. Uh, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us. And you instead go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Now, on the surface, the parable, I think, is pretty easy to understand. We've got 10 bridesmaids waiting for the groom to come. Again, there's some cultural differences, but we can understand getting ready for a wedding, and there's certain traditions that you prepare for. When I talk with couples, we talk about, are you going to do a a unity candle, or now there's sand that gets poured together, or sometimes there's a knot. There's all these different ways of doing it. There's usually rings. That's pretty typical in our culture. You're going to do a transfer of rings. You're going to have the groomsmen and the bridesmaid and the entrance of the bride, and everybody's going to stand, and you watch the mother of the bride. We all know these things, right? Because this is our culture. So we're entering their culture. They would have known these things. To us, it's a foreign culture. So they understand these bridesmaids are there, and their role in the wedding, at least at this point, is to light the way for the groom to come. Could you imagine being a groom, and you're coming for your wedding day, and you're coming for the celebration? These celebrations could last for days. And and you're coming at night. You've been delayed. It's a long journey. And, And you're supposed to walk up to just this beautifully illuminated scene of coming into this house and the bridesmaids are there and, and you walk up and it's pitch black. And be like, oh, it's my wedding day and well, this is not the way it's supposed to go. So this is what's in the, the minds of these bridesmaids. This is our role. We are here to wait for the groom and to make sure that he has light when he arrives. And we're told that five are foolish and five are wise. Now, Why? What makes the difference between these foolish bridesmaids and the wise bridesmaids? And I would say it's this. The wise are ready to wait. They're prepared to wait. They are there for the long haul. And they are focused on, no matter how long it takes for this groom to arrive, we will be ready with our lamps and our oil and ready to light the way for him. No matter how long it takes, their focus is on making the wedding successful. They're not there for themselves. They're there for the event and ultimately for the groom that's coming. Now the foolish bridesmaids, why are they there? 
Well, they're there because the wedding's going to start and they get to go in and have this great party and it'll just be a couple days of feasting and it'll be wonderful. But they haven't thought beyond that, that they have a role. They haven't prepared to wait. They want the quick, easy, let's go in and have a party. They don't care if they're ready if, when the groom comes. Now, now understand, again, this is cultural. These lamps we're talking about are super tiny. All right, you would, of course, bring extra oil. It is absolutely ridiculous in this story for them not to have oil. Their lamps would not have even lasted an hour. They had to have extra oil. So they are foolish because they didn't even think that far ahead. They're not concerned about the groom, and they're not focused on the wedding. They're just taking the easy way out. And verse 5 is the crucial point of this parable and every parable in this chapter. The groom is a long time in coming. Now, understand this in the rest of this chapter. It is the waiting that shows who's ready. It is the delay in someone coming back that proves what's in these people's hearts. The delay shows their heart. So what happens? The groom comes, the cry goes out at midnight, he's on his way. The faithful, the wise bridesmaids get up and they prepare their lamps and they're ready to go. And the foolish bridesmaids get up and they don't have enough oil. And so what do they say? Well, give us some of your oil. And the wise bridesmaids refuse. That's really mean and selfish of them. I mean, come on, shouldn't we all share? But see, here's what's going on. Why are the wise bridesmaids there? They're there for the groom and to be prepared and to make the wedding as best as it can be. And they know if we share our oil, the groom might show up not just to half of the lamps being lit, but to none of them being lit, and we have all failed. We are here to make the event what it's supposed to be. Their focus is not on themselves. It's on the groom that's coming. And the foolish bridesmaids, they don't want to have to go out and do the work. They don't want to have to go out and get their own oil. They just want to take from the other ones. So that when the groom shows up, they don't really care if it's lit up or not. They just don't want to be embarrassed. They just want to be able to get in right away to the wedding. And so the groom shows up. The foolish bridesmaids have left to get oil and they come back and in verse 11, they cry out, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. Presumably they're crying out to either the groom or the owner of the house, or there might've been a master of ceremonies. That's in the parable, but in the context, it's very clear who they're crying out to is Jesus. Jesus, let, let us in. I mean, we were here, I'm sure, we had to leave for a while, but, but that's where we want to be, like our hearts, we're in the wedding, we, we want to be there. And what does the Lord say? Truly, I tell you, I don't know you. They were there for themselves. Their focus was on themselves, not on the wedding, not on the groom, it was on themselves. And therefore, They are not allowed in. At the end of chapter 24, we ended with this cry and this this push of we must be ready for Christ to return. 
Now he picks up how to be ready. What does that look like to be ready? And part of it is to ask ourselves, where is our heart? Is our heart focused on our experience in the waiting? How do I feel good now? How do I get my best life now? How do I get everything I want now? Or how do I make sure that I'm ready for Christ to return? I am looking toward and longing for Christ to come back. I'm not focused on me and my experience now. I'm focusing on my Lord and my Savior who is coming back. Now, this raises a question. What about grace? What about grace? Shouldn't the Lord, the master, the the owner of the house, the groom, whoever it is, shouldn't he just show grace? I mean, aren't their hearts kind of in the right place? Shouldn't there just be grace to these bridesmaids? And this is a crucial thing to understand about this entire chapter. This chapter and all of these parables are not about how to be saved. They are about showing what's in someone's heart. These bridesmaids were not focused on the groom. And we know that because the groom waited and they were not ready. And it reveals their hearts. They want to take oil from someone else. They don't care if there's not enough oil to go around. They just don't want to look bad. It reveals what's in their hearts. They want to act like they have faith. They want to put on the show like they have faith. But there's no real faith there. If we take it to salvation, these are people whose hearts are not trusting in Jesus. They're just there for the party. And that's terrifying. They thought they were going into the wedding. They thought they were a part of the wedding. And it turns out they weren't. Jesus says, therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. So always be ready. I was raised in a tradition constantly emphasized, have you prayed a prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you prayed the prayer? Yeah, I prayed the prayer when I was five. That's great. Then you're, you're in heaven. You're good forever and ever. You prayed the prayer. Yeah, but I don't actually believe he exists anymore. But you prayed the prayer, so you went. You're in. I'm living in total flagrant sin. I don't really care what the Bible says. Well, it doesn't matter. You prayed the prayer, so you're in. The Bible never calls us to look back at a prayer we prayed sometime in our past history. It says, look at your life now. Now understand that what you do now does not earn your salvation at all. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what you do now and how we're living now gives evidence of our heart and whether or not we are believing in and trusting in Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the Bible constantly says, look at how you're living now. Not, did you pray some prayer when you were five? If you prayed that prayer, it's great. Are you living it now? Well, I turned to Jesus when I was 12. That's great. Are you living it now? I became a Christian last year. That's awesome. Are you following Christ now? Is your faith growing and focused on Jesus Christ and his return. Jesus is making it clear in these parables that there will be a long delay before he comes back. And that delay will reveal our hearts 
and whether or not we're truly trusting in him. What will we do as we wait for Christ to return? And next he tells another parable. In 14 through 30, and I've called this waiting in active faithfulness. Not just wasting time, but are we waiting in active faithfulness, serving the Lord? The bridesmaids had a role. They, they had a job to do for the wedding. They were there to prepare to greet the groom and to light the way when he arrived. Now Jesus is going to talk about some other people that have a role to play and, and a job to do. Look at Matthew twenty-five, fourteen through 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went out at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought out the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even though uh, even what they have will be taken from them and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a very wealthy man. And he's going on a trip. And he gives a significant amount of money to what are presumably some of his most trusted servants. This is not the farmhand working out in the fields. He's like, ah, uh, by the way, I'm going to give you a bunch of money and see what you do with it. These would have been servants that were involved in the affairs of the house, probably involved in his financial matters. They know him. They know how to deal with his money. They know what he wants. He knows that they should be able to handle this. Now, the amounts of money here are actually staggering. The word in Greek and, and in their culture is a talent. Unfortunately, talent is not very helpful, partially because we have an English word, talent, that has nothing to do with it whatsoever. Yes, we can talk about use your talents, serve the Lord. Okay, but that's not really the point of what Jesus is saying. The talent, the other thing it's not really helpful is that talent wasn't actually a unit of money. It was a unit of weight. 
a talent was, was a certain amount that would weigh a certain amount. And the question is, a certain amount of what? Now, the NIV has filled it in for us, a bag of gold. That's probable. Greek doesn't actually say it was gold. It's just a talent. Could have been silver. Probably was either silver or gold. Otherwise, the, the parable kind of loses its point. But if it was gold, they have estimated that this is what, and if you have a footnote, it says this, this is what a day laborer would typically make. One talent, they would typically make in about 20 years' time. This is several hundred thousand dollars, possibly even as much as half a million dollars. One talent. How much was the first servant given? Five talents. This is a significant amount of money. And verse 15 says that they are each given according to his ability. The master knew these men. He knew what they were capable of. And he wasn't demeaning any of them by giving them less. He just knew this is something they can be faithful with. There is never a comparison of who has been given more and who has been given less. There is always the emphasis on what have they done with what they were given. They were trusted, high-level servants. And look at their response. The one given five goes out and invests. We're not told how, but he gets five more. The one that was given two, he goes out and he, he invests. Now, this is not like a stock market. This would have been business ventures that these men would have had to be involved in day in and day out, working hard, managing this money. And the one that's given one, what does he do? It's a shovel, digs a hole, and he throws the bag of money in and covers it up. And then what does he do? We're not really told, are we? What we are told is that the master returns in verse 19 after a long time. I was thinking about this and I thought, you know, if the master returned quickly, the guy with five bags probably would have had about five bags. I mean, it wasn't, if he returned quickly, it wouldn't have been enough time to, maybe a little bit more. The one with two bags would have had maybe two plus a little bit. And the one with one could have pulled it out and just say, see, here, I was faithful. Here's your one. I didn't lose any of it. No problem. What makes the difference? The master is a long time in returning. The wicked servant either assumed that his master would just come back right away, so he put in zero effort, or he didn't care, he was just wicked and lazy and didn't want to do any work at all. He had been entrusted with something, and he did nothing with it. And so the master comes back. And watch the interactions between the master and the servants. In verse 21, he comes back, and the one with five talents, he has five more, and he gives them to the master. And look at what the master says. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And look at this. Look at this. This is a master and his servant, his slave. Come and share in your master's happiness. Think of the heart of the master there. This this is a servant. He could have have just said, great, thanks, good job. All right, now you go home and I'm going to take this money that you earned and I'm going to do great things. But he said, no, servant, you did great and I want you to be a part 
of experiencing the blessing of what you just earned and what I've earned. I assume he went on a trip to gain even more money. This is a very wealthy guy and he's saying to this lowly servant, I want you to enjoy all that I have. Come and share in your master's happiness. Verse 23, the man with two talents earns two more and the master says the exact same thing. Come and share in your master's happiness. What kind of master is this? He is generous. He is loving. He is gracious. He wants to share all that he has with his servants. That's who he is. Now, we need to keep that in mind because the wicked lazy servant is about to say some really mean things about the master. And so often people want to take this to say, oh, are they saying that's who God is? No, that's who this guy thinks God is. And he's wrong. 24 to 25, he says, then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. He says his master's a, a hard man. He hints that he's dishonest or even corrupt. Here you go, master. You're a horrible person. Here's your money. This is not a good servant. He says he was afraid. Now, if you remember right back to the beginning of the parable, he wasn't afraid. He was wicked and lazy. That's why he put it in the ground. Not because he was afraid. See, he's lying. He got one bag and he gives one bag back. And in his mind, what's the big deal? So what? You got your money back. I was faithful. You asked me to hold on to it. I gave it back to you. What is the big deal? The big deal is what has this servant been doing the whole time the master's been away? And the answer is, we don't know, but it certainly wasn't managing the master's money. And that was literally his job. Remember, he's a servant. Where does he live? He lives in a house provided by the master. He's evidently a high-level servant. It's probably a decent house. Where does he get his food? He eats the food that's provided for him from the master in his household. If he has a wife and kids, how do they live? Well, they live off the money provided by the master. This man's very existence revolves around his master caring for him. But when his master leaves, he says, I'm not going to do anything. Anything. I'm just going to go do whatever I want. I don't care about my master. This wicked and lazy servant has taken all the master provides. And when asked to be faithful for the master, he refuses. But he takes it a step further. Because he refuses. And who does he blame? Whose fault is it? The masters. This is like people saying, well, I would have followed God, but I don't like God. He's a horrible God. Says who? Says the people that don't want to trust. They don't get to experience the love and grace because they've already written God off. And so then they blame God for what they think about God. 
Following God is hard. Don't get me wrong. Trusting God is hard. God is God. We are not. I say that all the time. Of course, we're not going to understand some things. Of course, we're going to say, well, if I was God, I would do that differently. You probably would. I probably would. And I would probably be a total idiot and fail. Because I'm not God. I'm not qualified to be God. Only God is. The servant is absolutely wrong about the master. The master never says the servant is right. He says, so that way, that's what you thought. If that's truly what you thought, why wouldn't you have put in at least a little bit of effort? See, the servant is lying and he's just gotten caught. If he was really afraid, he could have at least invested it or put it in a bank and earned a little bit of interest. And here we see again that there are eternal consequences. The two servants who trusted their master are rewarded with enjoying all the master has. And the one who was selfish and wicked and lazy is thrown outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Are we actively and faithfully waiting for Christ to come back? It has been a long time. It might yet still be a long time. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming back. We need to be faithful Focus on Christ. We need to keep our eyes on the gospel that saves us and live changed lives to reflect who we are in Jesus Christ. His last words at the end of Matthew to his disciples are, go into all the world, spread the gospel. There's our role as servants. Are we being faithful? Are we digging a hole, throwing the gospel in the ground, and then blaming God? Well, it's just this world you made. It's just too messed up, God. I would be faithful if you made a better world. If the government was better, if my neighbors were better, if my family was better. It's not my fault. Are we truly waiting in faithful service? Finally, verses 31 to 46 talks about waiting in loving service. This one's not really a parable, but Jesus does use an illustration in it. And he's talking about the very difficult concept of the final judgment. Starting in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. And here's where the illustration starts. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. 
They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It really seems like Jesus is talking here about how to be saved. If you want to be saved, you've got to serve others and show love and compassion. But, but we need to understand that this is one thing that Jesus said among a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and then God supernaturally revealed things to other people. That's also in Scripture. We've got to take the whole Scripture together. So let me just put this in context. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus says that. He doesn't say no one comes to the Father unless you do really good things. He says, no, no, you have to come through me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. You can't be saved by what you do. Titus 3, 4, and 5, But when the kindness and love of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. The Bible is, that is abundantly clear we are not saved by what we do. But remember the theme of chapter 25, the waiting reveals the heart. And that's what's going on here. What these people have done while they wait reveals where their heart truly is at. And he says there will be judgment. We will all stand, each and every one of us, before the throne of our King Jesus. That's where we're all headed. All of us, without exception. Jesus will judge us. There will be two groups. One that will go to be with their King in his presence forever, if we tie into the last parable, to share in his master's happiness. That's the eternal destiny of those saved by Jesus Christ. The others will go to eternal punishment. The punishment reserved for the devil. See, see, hell is not where the devil's in control and like you're going to go there and have a party with the devil. No, hell is where the devil is punished. And those not saved by Jesus Christ are going to go and be punished with him. There's no party there. And the gospel says you don't have to have that be your end. You can be saved. And Jesus says that in this case, what he tells these two groups is that one group saw the least of these and showed love and compassion. Now, some have taken this to say, well, we should serve the poor because you might be serving Jesus in disguise. I think that's taking it a little bit too far. I don't think Jesus is literally saying, I was that person. I was just kind of hiding. I was playing a little prank on you and, you know, you serve me. I think what he's saying is these people were representing me. And you served them as if you were serving me. Or you didn't serve them as if you should have been serving me. The difference between these two groups is how they treated the least of these. Throughout the Bible, the least of these is the poor, the oppressed, those that are struggling, those the society has written off. And Jesus says, how did you treat those people? One group cared for them in extreme measures. The other group didn't care at all. But there's a key point in verse 40 that we must 
take into account. In verse 40, it says, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, what? Brothers and sisters of mine. I want to be careful here. The Bible is abundantly clear. We are to care for, love, and serve the oppressed and the cast off. Absolutely. I I don't want anybody to walk away from this going, Pastor Dave said we don't have to love those people. What I do want to say, though, is what Jesus is specifically talking about here. And that phrase, one of the least of these brothers of mine, or brothers and sisters, is always used of the church. Jesus is specifically talking about Christians loving and serving other Christians. Not to the neglect of everybody else. That's just not what he's talking about here. So I want to apply this the way our Lord is applying it. You see, the church is to be different. We are a gospel-believing, gospel-changed community. And how we treat one another displays the gospel to the world. And yes, how we treat them too. I don't want to ignore that. I feel like i got to keep saying that. Somebody's going to say, Gee, Pastor says we shouldn't love the poor. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to raise up. We've got to get this right in our own family. We tell this to our kids all the time. This is your practice ground. The family is the training ground for life. If we can't treat each other in a loving, gracious way, I guarantee when you go out, you're not going to treat others in a loving, gracious way. And this is so important that he's saying to these people, how did you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? Did you care for them? Did you go out of your way? Did you sacrifice for one another? And the answer for some of them was, no. I'm not just doing my thing. You know what's really telling to me and kind of scary? The goats in this section are surprised. That's terrifying. These people thought they were believers. They thought they were followers of Jesus Christ and they appear before the judgment day and what they hear is, I don't even know you. That's terrifying to me as a pastor and as a Christian. Because if I'm preaching in such a way that just keeps you comfortable and happy and fulfilled, but isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ, I may be causing you to be deceived about your eternal salvation. And that's on me. The goats are surprised. They thought they were going in. I don't want there to be any surprises on the day of judgment for any of us. I want us to be able to say, you know what? I know I'm saved because I didn't care for people like that before. And I didn't focus on Jesus coming back and I didn't live my life focused on that. I have been changed by the gospel and I know I have because I see it in my life. I want us to stand before Jesus. And here, come on in. Enjoy your master's blessings. And I pray, and it is my heart's desire, that our church and that every church is a visible demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even going down to how we talk to each other, how we treat each other, how we care for one another, both in this building and even more importantly, out of it. How do we love each other? 
So let me ask you, and let me ask me, are we prepared to wait for Jesus to come back? Are we in it for the long haul? Are we just waiting long enough to get what we want? And if we don't get what we want, we'll move on to something else that feels better. Are we waiting with active and loving compassion for fellow believers? Are we being faithful with the time that we've been given and whatever earthly treasure we have, whether that's abilities or money or time? Are we being faithful? Or are we being lazy and distracted? Friends, Jesus is coming back. And how we wait reveals our hearts and what we're truly focused on and trusting in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is my heart's desire for each and every one of us that we would take stock of our heart's desire that we would ask ourselves the hard questions. What are we really focusing on? What's most important to us? And God, all of us, I think, struggle with wanting to be distracted, wanting to waste time, wanting to just bide our time. And I fear, Father, that some of us might think, oh, I'm good with God. I went to church, prayed the prayers, dropped some money in the offering plate. I'm good. Father, I pray that we would truly ask ourselves that question. Are we truly trusting in you? Or are we just going through the motions? And may we not forget that for those who trust in you, there is blessing beyond measure in your eternal presence that you long to share with us the joy and the love and the grace and mercy that are yours because of your righteousness and your holiness and your love for us. And all of this is made possible by what Jesus will do just a few days after this talk when he will serve us by going to the cross and dying in our place to pay the price for our sins, that all who believe in him might be set free and live forever. And so I pray, Father, if there's anyone here not trusting you, may today be the day. And Father, for each of us, may we ask ourselves how we're living, what we're trusting in. May we realign our trust and our hearts with the truth that our Savior Jesus is coming back. And may we long for that day and be faithful in the meantime. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.